around the year 1650, the British soldier and statesman Oliver Cromwell commissioned an artist named Samuel Cooper to paint his portrait. Cooper insisted that all clients visit his studio for eight sittings, which was unusual at the time, and he was admired for the precision of his portraits. When Oliver Cromwell came to have his portrait painted, he famously instructed Cooper to paint him warts and all. And that's exactly what Cooper did. According to an art expert quoted in the Guardian newspaper, Cooper's portrait of Oliver Cromwell features the best painted wart in English art. Well, thanks to Cromwell and his lack of vanity, the expression warts and all has entered the English language. And in today's Bible passage, we are given a warts and all account of Abraham's visit to Egypt. Up to this point in the book of Genesis, Abraham has behaved admirably. You can make the case that he lingered for too long in the city of Haran, delaying his entry into the land God had promised him. But aside from that delay, Abraham has demonstrated great faith. Hebrews 11 summarizes that period of Abraham's life like this. By faith, Abraham, when called to go to a place he would later receive as his inheritance, obeyed and went. By faith, he made his home in the promised land like a stranger in a foreign country. But that admirable background makes Abraham's behavior in this passage all the more shocking. He behaves so badly in Egypt that he's rebuked for his misdeeds by Pharaoh, king of Egypt. We might be tempted to skip quickly past this warts and all account of Abraham's time in Egypt, but that would be a mistake. Psalm 19 teaches us that all of God's word is sweeter than honey and more precious than gold. And what we'll discover today is that Abraham's misdeeds in Egypt do not derail God's blessing. God keeps on blessing Abraham despite Abraham's wrongdoing. Now that raises questions to do with the justice of God, questions that the Bible answers, as we'll see later. But ultimately, God's relentless blessing of Abraham should be reassuring, extremely reassuring for every follower of Jesus Christ. We're looking to God for his eternal blessing, aren't we? But we're also conscious of our great shortcomings. We ask ourselves, can God really bless a worm like me, a wretch like me? And then we turn to today's Bible passage and we find gold, we find honey. We see, yes, God can bless a wretch like me because he blesses worm Abraham, wretch Abraham. It's very reassuring. So today we're going to do what Samuel Cooper did when he painted Oliver Cromwell. We're going to observe Abraham's warts closely. 
doing so will reassure us that God's blessing overcomes our sinning. He continues to bless his people in spite of our misdeeds. There are three failures exhibited by Abraham in this passage. And the first is a failure of faith. A failure of faith. Let's look down, please, to verse 10. Now there was a famine in the land. So Abram went down to Egypt to sojourn there, for the famine was severe in the land. It's not hard to imagine why Abraham felt he had to move his household from Canaan to Egypt. He was responsible not only for his wife Sarah and his nephew Lot, but also for the servants in their household. They all looked to Abraham to provide them with bread. He must have heard that Egypt still had a plentiful supply of food, so he packed up the U-Haul and moved his people and possessions across the Sinai Peninsula to Egypt. That may have seemed like a reasonable course of action to Abraham, but it should be viewed as a failure of faith. Psalm 33 says, The eyes of the Lord are on those who fear him, on those whose hope is in his unfailing love, to deliver them from death and keep them alive in famine. In other words, those who fear God can trust him and should trust him to deliver them in a time of famine. Canaan was where God had told Abraham to go, not Egypt. Canaan was the land God had promised to give Abraham, not Egypt. Yes, Abraham's God was and is the God of all the world, but this Most High God had tied himself in a special way to the land of Canaan. And Abraham knew that. In the book of Genesis, Abraham builds four altars to the Lord, and they're all in Canaan, not in Egypt or Mesopotamia, the land of his birth. No, all of Abraham's four altars are built while he's in Canaan. God had tied himself in a special way to Canaan, and Abraham knew that, and so by moving to Egypt for food, Abraham was displaying a lack of confidence in God. If God can provide a whole land for his people, he can also be trusted to provide food for his people. Someone might say that by going to Egypt for food, Abraham does exactly what Jacob and his sons do during a later famine in Canaan, and no one thinks they did the wrong thing on that occasion. But the difference is they are urged to move to Egypt by Joseph. And in Genesis, Joseph is a, a prophet who reliably speaks on God's behalf. So the Jacob and sons parallel doesn't get Abraham off the hook. There's no Joseph figure here in Genesis 12, speaking on God's behalf, revealing God's will. In fact, Abraham doesn't seem to be seeking God's leading at all. Abraham knows God's will is for him to be the father of a great nation. And yet, as we'll see in a moment, he's fully prepared to live in Egypt as Sarah's brother instead of living there as her husband. If he lives in Egypt as Sarah's brother, how can he become the father of a great nation? Abraham may still believe at this point in time that God's promise will ultimately come true, 
but he's not walking by faith. In her commentary on the book of Genesis, Joyce Baldwin says, in view of the fact that Abraham knew he was in the land of promise, to leave it so promptly, the minute difficulty loomed ahead, has every appearance of an unbelieving flight from difficulty, a desertion of faith. The Bible commentator Derek Kidner agrees with that verdict. He says, here at the first touch of hunger, the vision was lost and the whole enterprise hazarded. But Abraham's failure of faith, this loss of confidence in God's power to keep his promise, wasn't Abraham's only failure. On the border between Canaan and Egypt, he demonstrates a second kind of failure, a failure of character. Let's look down, please, to verse 11, and I'll read from there. When he was about to enter Egypt, he said to Sarai, his wife, I know that you are a woman, beautiful in appearance, and when the Egyptians see you, they will say, this is his wife, then they will kill me, but they will let you live. Say you are my sister, that it may go well with me because of you, and that my life may be spared for your sake. Abraham is convinced that Sarah's beauty will get him into trouble in Egypt. He foresees a situation where the knives will come out for him as Sarah's husband, because if an Egyptian wants to marry Sarah, they'll need to get him out of the way first. There is actually a half-truth in verse 13, say that you are my sister, because in Genesis 20, we find out that Sarah is Abraham's half-sister. They share the same father, not the same mother. But it's possible for a half-truth to be used to cover up the main truth. And that's why if you ever give evidence in court, you'll have to swear to tell the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth. Abraham is getting Sarah to testify falsely. He's causing her to sin. And in the Bible, causing someone to sin, causing someone else to sin, is an extremely serious offense in God's sight. It all adds up to a major failure of character on Abraham's part. Look at his self-centeredness in verse 13. Say you are my sister, that it may go well with me, because of you, and that my life may be spared for your sake. He seems far more focused on his own predicament than her predicament. He's willing to use his wife as a kind of human shield to protect himself. And there's no sign that he cares greatly about what happens to the shield, his own wife. As things turn out, the situation gets increasingly cushy for Abraham and increasingly intolerable for Sarah. I'll read from verse 14. When Abram entered Egypt, the Egyptians saw that the woman was very beautiful, and when the princes of Pharaoh saw her, they praised her to Pharaoh, and the woman was taken into Pharaoh's house, and for her sake he dealt well with Abram. And he had sheep, oxen, male donkeys, male servants, female servants, female donkeys, and camels. We aren't told whether Pharaoh and Sarah ever shared the same bed. It depends on how you interpret Pharaoh's words in verse 19, why did you say she is my sister so that I took her for my wife? 
But even if Pharaoh's desire to marry Sarah was never consummated, she had to live with the likelihood of that happening. We mustn't make excuses for Abraham here. The self-centeredness he displays is extreme. If God hadn't stepped in, Abraham would have got ever richer, while Sarah would have been drawn ever deeper into an adulterous relationship that was not of her making. Thankfully, however, God does intervene. And before the end of the sermon, we'll think about what God's intervention tells us about him and his dealings with his people. But first, we need to keep our eyes on Abraham so we get a proper grasp of his shortcomings. Verses 17 to 20 highlight Abraham's third failure, a failure of witness. So we've had a failure of faith, a failure of character. His third failure is a failure of witness. Let's look down to those verses now, verses 17 through 20. But the Lord afflicted Pharaoh and his house with great plagues because of Sarai, Abram's wife. So Pharaoh called Abram and said, What is this you have done to me? Why did you not tell me that she was your wife? Why did you say she is my sister? So that I took her for my wife. Now then, here is your wife. Take her and go. And Pharaoh gave men orders concerning him, and they sent him away with his wife and all that he had. Sent him away, there in the middle of verse 20, is a rather mild translation. The same verb is used earlier in Genesis when God banishes Adam and Eve from the Garden of Eden. Verse 20 is a get-off-my-lawn situation. Pharaoh can't wait to see the back of Abraham. He wants Abraham out of Egypt as soon as possible. According to verse 20, Pharaoh doesn't simply tell Abraham to leave Egypt. He gives orders to his officials to make sure Abraham's exit happens. Pharaoh gave men orders concerning him, and they sent him away with his wife and all that he had. It's like an office boss calling up a big guy from security to make sure that a fired employee leaves the building. Pharaoh has good reasons for being anti-Abraham. Looking at verse 17, it seems he somehow understands that the great plagues God has brought upon him and his household are a direct consequence of Sarah's presence in his, in his house. He rightly points the finger of blame at Abraham. He says, what is this you have done to me? Why did you not tell me that she was your wife? Why did you say she is my sister, so that I took her for my wife? Pharaoh's reasoning is very clear. If Abraham had told him the truth about Sarah being his wife, he, Pharaoh, would not have taken her to be his wife. In the words of a preacher named Mark Ashton, Abraham's cowardice and deceit were worthy of an unbeliever. The pagan Pharaoh acts with greater virtue than the hero of faith. The pagan pharaoh acts with greater virtue than the hero of faith. Abraham has fallen short of his God-given calling. 
if you were here last week, you might remember that God told Abraham, you will be a blessing. All peoples on earth will be blessed through you. The idea is that Abraham and his descendants will serve as the keepers of the promise of salvation. And outsiders will gain access to that promise of salvation through Abraham and his descendants. They are the carriers, the bearers of blessing for the world. And there's an expectation throughout the Bible that the bearers of blessing will attract the rest of the world by their own good example. When Moses speaks to Israel, the nation descended from Abraham just before the Israelites enter the land of Canaan, he says to them, See, I have taught you decrees and laws, as the Lord my God commanded me, so that you may follow them in the land you are entering. Observe them carefully, for this will show your wisdom and understanding to the nations who will hear about all these decrees and say, surely this great nation is a wise and understanding people. That's how things have always been meant to be for God's people. The nation bearing God's blessing was supposed to be attractive to the rest of the world. The same principle can be found in the New Testament. In Paul's letter to Titus, he tells Titus what he should say to Christian slaves. And we heard those instructions in our first Bible reading earlier in the service. Here they are again. Teach slaves to be subject to their masters in everything, to try to please them, not to talk back to them and not to steal from them, but to show that they can be fully trusted. Why? So that in every way they will make the teaching about God our Saviour attractive. So that in every way they will make the teaching about God our Saviour attractive. And that's through their lives, the way they live. It's a principle found throughout the Bible. It's a whole Bible principle. God's people should attract outsiders, non-believers, to their message of salvation by the goodness of their lives. We're meant to display God's wisdom to a watching world. But Abraham falls badly short of that calling in Egypt. Far from blessing Pharaoh and his people, Abraham instead leaves them with the stench of his own bad character. Well, it's time to turn from Abraham to Abraham's God. How does God respond to Abraham's failures, his failure of faith, his failure of character, and his failure of witness. God is mentioned just once in this passage in verse 17, which says, But the Lord afflicted Pharaoh and his house with great plagues because of Sarai, Abram's wife. That's the only time God is mentioned. As we've seen, Pharaoh connects those plagues to Sarah's presence in his house, and he quickly expels Abraham as a result. So God's intervention is effective. It allows Abraham and Sarah to return to Canaan, where they should have been all along. Now this is, I'm sure you'll agree, a massively one-sided intervention. It shows that God really meant it when he said to Abraham, I will bless those who bless you, 
and whoever curses you, I will curse. Pharaoh does not seem to have cursed Abraham consciously, but his actions did unintentionally curse Abraham by separating him from his wife, Sarah. Abraham and Sarah had to remain together as man and wife so that a nation would descend from Abraham, fulfilling God's promise. God really meant it when he said to Abraham, I will bless those who bless you, and whoever curses you, I will curse. Now, it wouldn't surprise me if God's intervention raises some uncomfortable questions in your mind. Abraham was the one at fault, so how can it be right for Pharaoh and his household to be cursed, while faulty Abraham returns to Canaan safe and sound and much wealthier than he was before. It seems one-sided to the point of injustice. But it's helpful to remember that if God only blessed people who deserved his blessing, he wouldn't bless anyone. The Bible says all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. We all deserve to receive God's curse. And it's only through God's amazing grace that Abraham and his spiritual children receive God's blessing. As it says in Psalm 103, the Lord does not treat us as our sins deserve. But when God deals with us in this astonishingly generous way, he's not lowering his righteous standards. God already knew his son Jesus would receive the curse Abraham deserved. According to Ephesians chapters 1 and 2, God knew before the foundation of the world, long before Abraham, that undeserving people would be blessed on the basis of Jesus' death on the cross. Jesus is the only person in human history who actually deserved God's blessing. He received God's curse so that those who believe the good news might be eternally blessed. We're meant to be disgusted by Abraham's behavior in this passage because this passage shows us that God really does bless worms and rotters and wretches. He blesses sinners like Abraham and sinners like you and me. You may have come here this morning deeply conscious, acutely conscious of failures of faith or character or witness in your life. Or all three, as we see with Abraham in this passage. You're not alone. Abraham got there long before you. God blessed Abraham through Jesus. And you too will receive God's blessing if you're trusting in the cross. It always needs to be said that God's willingness to forgive should not be taken as a license to sin. Forgiveness should not be exploited. A persistent, unrepented sin puts a question mark over our status as believers. Persistent, unrepented sin puts that question mark over our status as believers. Abraham harmed people in Egypt, and that really mattered. 
Yes, Abraham was forgiven, but it's much better for God's people to choose not to sin. Sin is harmful. In this passage, Abraham's failure of character is harmful to Sarah and to Pharaoh and his household. Abraham's failure of witness harms the reputation of God's people. And those sins could have been avoided if it wasn't for Abraham's failure of faith that set him off down the road to Egypt in the first place. The passage is primarily about God's grace, but we can and should learn from Abraham's negative example. Sin matters. Even though we are God's forgiven people, we should choose not to sin with God's help. We can learn from Abraham's negative example. If a friend suffered bad head injuries because they didn't wear a helmet while cycling, you'd be more inclined to wear a helmet yourself because of that example, wouldn't you? I hope so. And it's like that with Abraham in today's passage. As we see Abraham depending on his own resources in a time of trouble instead of looking to God, we can learn to act differently. As we see the lack of love that Abraham shows to Sarah, we can learn not to shortchange people in our lives by depriving them of the love we owe them. As we see Abraham leaving outsiders with a very nasty taste in their mouths, we can learn the importance of living out our calling as blessing bearers in the sight of a watching world. We can learn from Abraham's negative example, but it wouldn't be right for us to finish with our eyes on Abraham. This Bible passage invites us to lift our eyes to heaven with thankfulness in our hearts. God's determination to bless Abraham despite his sin is repeated in the life of every single believer. It's the reason why David can say in Psalm 23, Surely goodness and steadfast love will follow me all the days of my life, and I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. David knew he would keep on falling short until his death. And yet he could say those things. Surely goodness and steadfast love will follow me all the days of my life and I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. If you're not yet trusting in Jesus, perhaps someone listening to this sermon online, come to him. Because the God and Father of our Lord Jesus relentlessly blesses his people even though they don't deserve it. God overcomes our sinning with his blood-bought blessing. When his love encounters our unloveliness, it doesn't stop flowing. God continues to bless his people in spite of our misdeeds. Let's give thanks to God now. Father in heaven, we come to you with gratitude in our hearts because you are a God who overcomes our grievous shortcomings with your wonderful blessings through Jesus, your Son, who died for our sake. We praise you and thank you for him. Amen.